You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Useless Information. Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast. This is way of the unusual story of the flypaper murderess, which was first released on June 15th of 2011. I have to tell you, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence in the story, and that may leave you wondering as to whether or not she killed anyone. And I guess it's probably best that I keep my opinion to myself and let you make your own conclusion as you listen to the facts of this case. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled The Fly Paper Murderess. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And for today's question of the day, I decided to ask you about photography. Now, while film is hardly needed today, the original development of photography was simply amazing. So my question for you today is fairly straightforward. When was the first permanently fixed photograph taken? Was it 1 in 1784, 2, 1802, 3, 1826, 4, 1864, or 5, 1894? Again, when was the first permanently fixed photograph taken? Was it 1, 1784, 2, 1802, 3, 1826, 4, 1864, or 5, 1894? And if you know a little bit about the history of photography, you may already know the answer. But if you don't, I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story in what I've titled, The Fly Paper Murderess. So let's set our clocks back to May 22nd of 1931, when it was revealed in the press that a Chicago woman was being investigated for the death of her 17-year-old nephew named Thomas Myers, who just happened to have died in her home. I was unable to locate the exact date of his death, but it was definitely within the previous two or three weeks of when the investigation commenced. Now, the police were initially contacted by relatives of the suspect, who was 47-year-old Margaret Summers. The relatives became suspicious when they learned that Thomas had designated Mrs. Summers as the sole beneficiary of his life insurance policy. Now, that probably doesn't sound like much reason for an investigation, so let me provide some more details in the case. First, her husband, Thomas Shag Summers, had died in the house on August 9, 1931, at the age of 37. Again, Mrs. Summers was the sole beneficiary 
of his life insurance policy. And then there were the deaths of two peddlers named William Ryman and Thomas Lanigan, both of whom were boarders at Mrs. Summers' home. Now, can you guess who was the sole beneficiary of their life insurance policies? Hmm, who could it be? Yep, you're right. Once again, it was Margaret Summers. And as investigators started to piece the story together, they also learned that her brother, Louis Myers, had also died at her residence. And he just happened to be the father of the 17-year-old that started the whole investigation in the first place. And he also had a life insurance policy that left it all to Mrs. Summers. And then there was her brother, John, who had come from Chicago to attend their brother, Louis's funeral. And he died within a week at her home. Now, if you've lost track of all these names that I've given to you in rapid fire, it was her husband, two brothers, her nephew, and two boarders that all died within a three-year period at her North Avenue home. And all six made Margaret Summers the sole beneficiary of their life insurance policies. Further investigation revealed that she was the sole beneficiary of 19 different policies that had been taken out on 10 different men. Sounds like we may have a serial killer on our hands. What do you think? The police arrested her the very next day and tried to get her to spill the beans, but they couldn't. She insisted that she was innocent. They all say that. Mrs. Summers explained that she was just good to all these men, which is why they designated her as the sole beneficiary. Now, that could be true, but it turns out that she paid nearly all of the premiums on all of their policies. Doctors had examined her nephew Thomas Myers prior to burial, and they saw no evidence of foul play. So his body was exhumed, and the toxicology test showed that he died of chronic arsenic poisoning. They determined that the arsenic was administered in small doses over a very long period of time. They then dug up her late husband's body, and guess what? It was confirmed that he also died from arsenic poisoning. And then her boarder, Reamer, died of the same exact cause. On the other hand, the coroner determined that her other boarder, Lanigan, had died from acute arsenic poisoning. In other words, he was bumped off quickly. Now, the case was presented to a grand jury on May 26th. Matilda Kuhn took the stand and testified that Mrs. Summers told her that she had poisoned her husband because she caught him with Mrs. Kuhn's 22-year-old daughter, Anna. And then there was Agnes Summers, her husband's sister, who claimed that she had overheard Mrs. Summers tell her nephew Thomas, that's the first guy who was killed, to take her husband's clothing, and this is a quote, because he won't need them. As you'd expect, Mrs. Summers continued to maintain her innocence. She explained to the police, and this is a quote, The way that the insurance business started, Tom was a friend of A. Taylor, an insurance agent, and always recommended his policies to help Taylor out. And that's how Thomas Lanigan and William Reimer, the two rumors who named me in the policies, happened to buy insurance. That's the end of the quote. Okay, so maybe it was just a lot of, you know, incriminating evidence that didn't add up to a conviction. Maybe she really was a nice person, and it was just coincidence that all these men died in her home within a short period of time. But things only got worse for Margaret Summers. It was learned that she'd been married to a man named James Lynch, who had died 17 years earlier. Then they discovered she had also been married to four other men. That's six husbands in total. 
Not only that, but five of the six had died. Now, they were unsure of the status of the sixth husband, but he was also presumed dead based on the testimony of others. And then there was another possible victim, a cab driver named Samuel Strauss, who was still alive, but incredibly ill. Doctors had prescribed medicine for him, and Mrs. Summers was the one who prepared it for him. I should mention that Mrs. Summers paid premiums on uh, life insurance policies taken out on others, but none of these people showed any sign of illness. This included two policies on a 50-year-old man named Robert Barker, a policy for her stepdaughter, Margaret Ritty, and individual policies for each of Mrs. Ritty's children. They were all fine. And lastly, police found a page torn out of Mrs. Summers' Bible that listed the names of 12 deceased men and the amount of money she received as the beneficiary of their life insurance policies. So just about everything that I've mentioned was pure circumstantial evidence, you know, incriminating enough for everyone to believe that Mrs. Summers was guilty, but maybe she was in fact telling the truth. Just possibly, she was very nice to all these men, and they agreed to take out insurance policies designating her as the beneficiary. After all, no one held a gun to their head and forced them to sign the documents. The police needed a smoking gun, but they didn't have one. There was no proof that she had made large purchases of arsenic over all of the years that these deaths had occurred. That was until two witnesses came forward and said that they had purchased large amounts of flypaper from Mrs. Summers in the two months prior to her nephew's death. And that was the case that they decided to prosecute. Margaret Summers was tried in late February of 1932 for the poisoning of her 17-year-old nephew, Thomas Meyer. The prosecution claimed that each sheet of arsenic lace flypaper was soaked in water to create a weak solution. The defense pointed out that the packaging on the flypaper indicated that no ill effects would result from soaking the sheets in water. This was countered with the argument that one wouldn't die from a solution from one or two soak sheets, but could if this was done repeatedly over a long period of time. It was also learned during the trial that Mrs. Summers was the beneficiary of nine policies taken out in her nephew's name. She had forged his signature on one of the policies. In total, she received $3,630 from these policies. That's about $50,000 in today's money. The jury took just three hours to deliberate the case. Mrs. Summers was found guilty of the murder of her nephew, Thomas Meyer, and sentenced to 14 years in prison. Now, she was never tried for the murder of any of the other men that she supposedly killed. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. It's 31 minutes past 8. Say, sweetie, I have a new adage to pass along. Well, let's hear it. Never say die. That's not exactly new, I'm afraid. Well, let me finish. Never say die, say Tintex. Oh, I get you. Tintex is the magic word to completely transform old fabrics into bright, new-looking things. Because all fabric Tintex is the one dye that dyes everything and beautifully. Right, and Tintex comes in over 50 attractive, and I might even say glamorous, shades. Mm-hmm. Yet Tintex is still only 10 and 15 cents or 25 cents for the giant size. Just think, honey. For only a few cents, dresses or curtains, to name only a couple of things, can be dyed to look just like new again with Tintex. Yes, and all fabric Tintex is guaranteed by Park and Tilford to dye any fabric, natural or synthetic. That commercial for Tintex fabric dyes is from the May 9th, 1947 episode of The Breakfast with Dorothy and Dick Show. Now, if you're curious, Tintex started as the dye manufacturers of Australia, which was a small company that used colorants in the production of medical products. They then quickly uh, branched off into creating dyes for clothing and foods, and eventually the dye business grew so large that they just abandoned the uh, medical portion of the business. Uh, The name Tintex was first used back in 1918. The radio show itself is a bit more interesting. Uh, Breakfast with Dorothy and Dick ran on WOR Radio in New York City from April 1945 until 1963. I guess in many ways they were like the uh, Kelly Ripa and Regis Philbin of their day. Dorothy was famed Broadway columnist and What's My Line panelist Dorothy Kilgallen. Uh, Dorothy passed away suddenly on November 8th of 1965 at the age of 52. She died of a fatal combination of alcohol and the barbiturate seconal just hours after filming an episode of uh, What's My Line? It was never determined if the death was an accidental overdose or a suicide. Uh, Now, Dick was her husband of 25 years, Broadway producer Richard Colmar. Uh, With Dick's approval, that episode of What's My Line did broadcast as scheduled in her honor. Kalmar died on January 11, 1971 in his sleep. The press reported his age as 59, but he was actually 60 years plus 11 days. Breakfast with Dorothy and Dick was broadcast live seven days per week. It was on from 8.15 to 8.55 a.m. Monday to Saturday, and then it was on from 11.30 to noon on Sunday. Now, what I find most interesting about the show is that it was always broadcast from their home. Uh, first from their apartment at 630 Park Avenue, and then from their Georgian Brownstone at 45 East 68th Street, which they had purchased in 1952. The guest on this particular episode was baseball great Leo DeRosha. 
who had just been suspended as the manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers for gambling. Uh, He appeared on the show with his new wife, actress Lorraine Day, which was very controversial in its day because she had been married when they started dating. DeRosha predicted on the show that newly hired Jackie Robinson would, quote, make good, which he definitely did, and that the Dodgers would win the World Series, which they didn't. The Yankees beat them in the very end, uh, four games to three. And now for a few totally useless, yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call news of the weird past. And I have to tell you, today's tidbits are all cyanide-related. Now, I have no clue how I ended up searching this out, but I can tell you while I was searching these tidbits, I did come across a story of the flypaper murderess. Our first tidbit dates back to June 27th of 1951, where it's reported that an Indiana-bound truck had lost two 200-pound containers of potassium cyanide in Geneva, Ohio. Workmen from the Ohio State uh, Highway Department rolled the two barrels to the side of the road, but when they returned to pick them up, one was missing. So police warned that breathing the fumes could bring instant death and, and of course, warned people to stay away if found. They added that if one of the barrels had opened and gotten into the water supply, thousands of people could die. Three days later, the barrel was found by a bakery truck driver named Fred Dietzel. Uh, He picked up the barrel so that children couldn't get into it. Our next story is dated January 23rd of 1952. It was reported that four drums of potassium cyanide fell out of a truck somewhere between Rahway and Raritan Township. Two drums were located immediately, but two were still reported missing. So chemists warned the public that anyone who touched the powder and then a mucous membrane would, you know what's going to happen, they would be killed. Uh, One of the missing drums was found by a trucker along the side of the highway, and then finally police received an anonymous call telling them to check the ditch, get this, by the girls' vocational school in Perth Amboy, and quote, you will find what you are looking for. And the last tidbit is my favorite of the bunch. It was reported on December 19th of 1958 that two bottles of sodium cyanide had disappeared from the COP clinical laboratories in Ottawa, Canada. They had somehow lost 50 ounces of the poisonous material, but they weren't exactly sure when it was taken. One of the bottles was found empty in a hallway garbage can of a rooming house, and no one knows what happened to its contents. The second jar was, now get this, it was found by a railway policeman, and you're really going to like this, it was cuddled up in the arms of a drunk asleep on a bench at Union Station there. Uh, The bottle was full, and there was no evidence that he had consumed any of it. And now the answer to today's question of the day. I had asked you when the first permanently fixed photograph was taken, and I gave you the choices of 1-1784, 3-1826, or 5-1894. So which one did you pick? Well, I hope you picked choice number three, which was 1826. Uh, that was actually earlier than I thought it was. Uh, the first permanent photograph, that is the first one of a real scene that was permanently fixed, occurred in 1826. Uh, the French scientist Joseph Nicephor Nips had his first success with photography 10 years earlier, but those pictures tended to fade over time. 
he had taken this particular picture, which was titled View from the Window at Le Gras, uh, from a window on the third floor of his family's Le Gras vacation home. To achieve this, he exposed a bitumen-coated pewter plate in a camera obscura for several hours to obtain the picture of the courtyard below. Now, if you're curious, along with his brother, he also created the world's first internal combustion engine. Now, I should tell you that it did not run on gasoline. Instead, it ran on a combination of lycopodium powder, which is something my students love to mess around with. So it's lycopodium powder, coal dust, and resin. It was patented on July 20th of 1807, and the new engine was used to power a boat upstream on the Sona River in France. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story on the flypaper murderess, as well as our question of the day on the world's first photograph, listening to our retro sponsor, Tintex, and of course the news of the weird past tidbits on the loss of cyanide. Uh, I apologize if my voice doesn't sound as strong as usual. I'm, you know, overcoming a cold, so the, you know, the stuffiness made the uh, podcast much more difficult to record. Now, if you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They're Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller, online, and of course, from your local library. Additional resources, including scans of some of the original research documents, additional comments on this particular podcast, and of course, related links can be found on my Facebook page, which is, of course, www.facebook.com slash useless information podcast. That's all one word. So facebook.com slash useless information podcast. Now, if for some reason you would like to contact me, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. Or you can visit my website at uselessinformation.org. And, of course, the uh, Facebook page does have uh, links to contact me also. And as always, I'd appreciate if you could log into iTunes and leave some positive comments, and that'll help increase the number of listeners to the podcast. And once again, I'd like uh, to thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye.